Um, here's, here's the Lord's purpose. This is why Jesus said that he came. He said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. So the Lord has come not only to rectify our sin, to save us of that, and to give us righteousness into our account, making it so that we might be declared holy before God. But he has come that we might have abundance today. That's the reason why we, we sing in this place. It's the reason why we thank the Lord for food on the table. Oftentimes at our home when we're praying and thanking the Lord for food, we'll just mention, Lord, what is on the table is abundance. And we just pause to say thank you for that. It's a good reminder to us that God has come in Christ that we might know the abundance of Christ, that the abundant life that he has. If I were going to try to sort of frame up and identify the characteristics of abundant life in Jesus Christ, I would do it with some of the words that are on the screen. Now, granted, you could throw some other words up on the screen, and I would say, let's do it, but at some point, you're going to want to go to lunch, so I'm just giving you a limited number of them to say that the abundance of Christ is demonstrated in the peace that we have with Christ. Uh, this week, I've had several people that I've engaged with in issues that they've been facing. Some of them are really pretty devastating. It's the news that they were not hoping to get, uh, a son that's incarcerated, a disease that seems persistent, a job that is lost. As I was just dealing with, with those kind of issues, it was reminded to me that Christ, regardless of the circumstance that you find yourself in, Christ has come that you might have peace. And that's a deep, settled peace. It's a resolve. It starts first by being at peace with God the Father, who is holy, who we have sinned against. But yet Christ redeems us in that, that we might be at peace with him. So a peace is an abundance of life. Rest. Jesus is said to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbat means rest. It's a day that God has set aside specifically in the rhythm of our week that we might rest in him. But the abundant life of Jesus is more than just taking a day of rest. The abundant life is rest. It's recognizing that body, soul, spirit can be inclined to rest in Christ Jesus. And it's not just peace and rest, but joy, abounding joy that is given to us. It's the, the satisfaction of life given by the Holy Spirit who is filled with joy it's the reason why we get up and live life unto the expression of great joy because the abundance that is ours in Christ, when you, when you contemplate the magnitude of having the treasures of heaven given to you, the riches of heaven poured into your life, it creates and constitutes joy. This is the abundance of Christ. Glory. Not just the image of Christ given to us. We're made in the image of God, which is a glorious image. Glory, by the way, means to be utterly unique. Uh, if I were to point out something that you do do it very well, I would say that's your glory. You do it differently than anybody else. Well, for God, he's above and greater than everything. So when we say God is glorious, we're talking about a love that is at depth that you and I never have experienced except by God or a mercy that is only akin to God, or a forgiveness that is lavish and generous, or generosity that doesn't measure in comparison to anybody else or anybody else combined. It's the glory of God. It's the uniqueness of God. So when I say that we have glory, we have a sense of glory because all people are made in the image of God, but it goes further than that so that God allows us to have the essence of his glory that we might demonstrate it in our daily living. That's the abundant life, the glorious life, that it just doesn't make sense that you love to the level that you love, except that God has poured love into your heart. It just doesn't make sense that you have peace in the midst of crisis, except God has poured peace into you by Christ. That's glory. You're living out that expression. Or relational intimacy. I'm talking about this deep heart, intimate relationship that we can have as friends, as family, as, as husband and wife, as co-workers. 
And that deep, intimate relationship can come because God has poured his love into us by his spirit. And we can love even when it doesn't make sense that we're loving. That's a deep, intimate relationship of the abundant life that Christ has given to us. And significance. It means that life takes on a, a, a great level of significance. You say, well, my job is just mundane. Oh, my friends, your job is the platform of influence that you might live significantly before the Father. You say, well, you don't know what I do. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. That's what makes it significant. So that we ought to be the, the greatest employees that any employer in Gadsden would know because we do our job unto the glory of and significant measure of Christ, who is abundantly living in us. All right, so this is what the abundant life is all about. This is what Jesus has come to bring for us, provide for us, for his own glory, for his own honor, and he does it well. But you know what the enemy do, is doing? He's looking to steal it. He's looking to kill it. He's looking to destroy it. And one of the weapons that he has in his arsenal, one of the greater, more de destructive weapons of the arsenal of the enemy against the abundant life is fear. You say, well, I wasn't expecting that one. You'd think you'd be talking about lies. You'd think you'd be talking about hate. But fear is one of the greater weapons that the enemy uses against us to rob us of the abundant life. I'll just go back through that list with you for a moment and just remind you that it is not possible to have peace with God and to have fear of man at the same time. It's not possible for rest and fear to sleep in the same bed. You ever tried to go to sleep in the midst of fear? Rest isn't there. It's not possible to have joy and fear combined. They celebrate differently. Joy is celebrating life, and fear is celebrating the destruction of life. It's not possible for them to be together any more possible than it is for light and darkness to be in the same mix. It's not possible for the glory of God and the fear of man to mix. It's not possible for intimacy to be where there is fear rooted. In fact, the scripture is pretty clear about that. It says that perfect love casts out fear. So it's not possible for them to be together. So wherever you have this abundant life that is given to us in Christ, you have the destruction measure of the enemy coming against that. And you and I need to be alert to that. So fear is one of the most damaging attempts of the enemy to rob and to destroy the abundant life of Christ that is ours in Jesus. And he will attempt to weave fear into our thoughts. Because if he can weave fear into our thoughts, then he can weave fear into the inner dialogue that we have. And if he can weave it into the inner dialogue, then it comes about in the decisions that we make and it comes about in the summary conclusions that we have before we act in that fear. What he's doing is he's trying to deposit fear as a root into our thinking because our thinking becomes what we're believing and what we're believing becomes the values and the values becomes the actions. So he is trying at all times to put fear in us. Now Jesus certainly understands that. He understands it's a weakness of us in the flesh that the enemy is capitalizing on. So he gives us a measure by which we, we might dismantle fear. It's as if he gives us a sledgehammer to say, tear that fear down. And if I had that sledgehammer in my hand, it would have on the handle the word truth. Truth is the sledgehammer that breaks down the building of fear in your life. So Jesus understands this weakness that we have. He understands the schematic way in which the enemy brings the attack against us, and he points us to what is truth. So you know in fear, what seems to be the root of fear is what if. You ever notice that? That it's the unknown that circles fear. So you might have a fear, but all-encompassing it is the what if. What if he does this? What if she does that? What if I lose this? What if I never get that? In the sphere of what if the lies from the enemy, he, he's the father of lies. In the sphere of the unknown, the lies of the enemy really have havoc on us. 
So what Jesus does in the passage that we're going to be reading today is he doesn't necessarily point out the unknowns. He points to what is known. He points to truth. And he tells us to dismantle this fear that's being built up in our life on the basis of truth. So truth begins to reset. Truth destroys that which the, the enemy is trying to uh, build up in our life. Truth correctly identifies who we are in Christ. It's rooted in our identity in Christ. Truth is this solid foundation for our feet by which we stand on. When everything else seems to be quaking around us, truth is what moves us to be mobile in the gospel and the transformation that Christ wants us to be part of. So being confident of our identity in Christ is essential. It dismantles the fear. So I'd say we ought to read the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, know it in a way that it helps us to be constituted in truth because the enemy is going to try to break down this abundant life of ours through lies. Now, Jesus understands this. In Matthew 10, he has a second message in the gospel. The first, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. The next one is which what we're reading about right now. Just to catch you up, if you're new to Meadowbrook, this message Jesus has commissioned the disciples two by two. And so he has sent them out. It's what the word apostle is. He has sent them out to be multipliers of his kingdom work, transformational work. And he gives them instruction about the ministry itself, what to do, just practically laying it out for them, where to go, who to talk to when they get there, uh, what to do if they reject them, all those kind of things. And then last week in the message, we heard from Hunter, who did a fantastic job just unpacking the truths there of that section of the scripture. And he reminded us that Jesus said, now, when I'm sending you out, here's the instruction, but you need to know persecution is going to come. Now, this week, we're going further in that message of Jesus, and he's saying not only is persecution going to come, but I don't want you to be fearful because that fear will break down everything that I've been building up in you, and it will immobilize you when I've called you to be mobile. So let's read the text beginning in chapter 10, verse 24, which we read that section last week, but I want to bring it forward in context. So let's start in 24, but we're going to concentrate on 26 and following. So verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So in essence, if they're doing this to the master, don't you think they'll do that to you, the student? If they say this about me, don't you think they're going to say the same about you? If they're misappropriating what I'm saying, don't you think they're going to do the same thing to you? Be, war be warned about that. Be alert to that. Now verse 26, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. I know that's a bigger deal for some of you than others. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, again, we're only reading a portion of this second message that Matthew records for us. But in this portion, we find what we find throughout the New Testament, and that is our identity. It reminds us of who we are. In fact, if you go back to verse 24, you'll see that he reminds us, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is, you're a learner of Christ. Christ is the the leader, the master, the instructor, the rabbi, if you will, and you and I are the disciples. Then he says in verse 25, you're of the household of faith, which is telling us by identity. That means that we are the family of God. So our identity is first as a disciple of Jesus Christ and as a son or daughter of God, brother, sister to Jesus Christ. We're part of the family, the household. 
Verse 27, he says, you are the one who has heard and know the words of God. In the teachings of Jesus, he would often say something that sounds a little bit odd unless you understand the context. He says, um, verily, verily, I say to you, then he says it, and then he says, let he who has ears hear. Now, of course, everybody's hearing that has ears. They're all hearing audibly, but what Jesus is saying, those of you who have the spirit measure by which to hear, hear it, receive it. All right, so in Christ Jesus, we have been given ears to hear. We've been given the spirit to instruct us. And so not only are we a disciple of Christ, we are a son of God or a daughter of God, and we are people who hear and know the words of God. And he says in verse 31, you are valued above that of the rest of creation. So not only are you more valuable than the birds, but many birds. And he could say the same thing about flowers or beasts of the field or clouds in the sky, whatever. Uh, we are the crown, if you will, of creation, and God has intended it to be that way. All right, now that's important for us, especially in this dialogue about fear, as God is commissioning his disciples and us to be the uh, communicators of transformation through gospel instruction. Fear has a tendency to come into us and seize us. So what we will do is just go back to those truths and echo them to the situation. So when fear creeps in and you think, I don't know what I'm going to say. Preacher, you want me to be a communicator of the gospel. I don't know what to say. Go back to your identity. You don't have to worry about what to say. All you have to worry about is being a disciple, a learner of Jesus, and he will teach you what to say. Now, that doesn't come supernaturally where just... You're mystified when you wake up in the morning because God has given you a fresh word for today that you've got to share. That might have happened, but more than likely it happens from here. You and I have to be engaged in God's word every day for him to teach us how to say it, what to say. In fact, here's what Jesus promised to his disciples. I'm going to my father, and it's good that I am because he will send the spirit, and he will teach you. He will remind you of the things that I've taught you, right? And then those teachings that have been given by Jesus, reminded by the Spirit of God to the disciples, become the very words of the New Testament. So if you want to hear the instruction of Jesus, you hear the instruction by what is written in this, your Bible. So he will teach you what to say. And when fear creeps in and you say, well, now, if I start to proclaim God's good news and his message, people are going to begin pulling back from me. And you know what? You're right. They're not going to want to have much to do with you anymore. Friends, you're going to lose. Family, you're going to have pullback from them. Neighbors who aren't going to come by quite as much. You know why? Because you're a Jesus freak. Seems like all you talk about is Jesus. What Jesus is doing in life, what he's doing in the world, how he's come to reclaim the brokenness of the world, how he's come to transform this world, redeem it. That's all you ever talk about. I don't want to hear that all the time. And you're going to sense a pullback. That is westernized persecution. That's it. So when we get to that point and we start to fear that, we come back to our identity and say, okay, Lord, I might not be the friend of everybody that I once thought I was the friend of, or I might not be as close in my family because they're pulling back from me, but I do know this, that I am a son or daughter of the Most High God. And if you're for me, who could be against me? In the end, the eternal relationship proves to be more significant. And when fear creeps into us and we begin to mute our voice because we don't want to publicly proclaim Jesus Christ and his, and, and his gospel message, we need to come back to our identity and say, the message is not mine. I am merely an ambassador for the king of the universe. The message is his. And when fear creeps up into you and you say, but your message may not be heard, you come back to your identity. I'm only the ambassador. The result is up to the king. It's his duty. I'm just the messenger. And when fear creeps into you and you begin to devalue or be devalued and be belittled by other people, then you can have confidence that I know that I'm the crown of creation. That's the way God views me. Above all others, uh, excuse me, not of others, but of all things that have been created, 
God has purposed to crown creation with me and mankind. And so I'm not devalued. In fact, in God's eyes, I'm highly valued. Our identity in truth dismantles the fear that the enemy tries to creep in to break down what Christ has been building up. Now, so unlike many other places in the world which have an oppressive, systematic means of people coming against them with persecution that is often a flash of violence, you and I don't have as much of that. Now, I do think that it's going to increase, but for the most of us, we're not going to experience that. But what we will experience is a slow simmering of persecution. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm not much of a cook, but every now and then I get in there. Kay usually shoes me out because I make way too big of a mess. But if I were going to cook and I were going to boil something very quickly for 15 minutes or I were going to cook something in a slow, steady simmer for two hours, in the end, it's still going to be cooked. Now, it might taste the same, uh, different, and it might come on the plate a little bit different, but in the end, both are cooked. What I want you to hear is when we read persecutions, we often think about the boil. We often think about the quick response that people are receiving from the ungodly. But you also need to think in persecution, it's in the Western world mostly a long simmer, a pulling away of friendship, a pulling away of coworkers, a pulling away of classmates, a pulling away of family to a point that we are in isolation. What our duty is, is to stay true to who we are in our identity to Christ push into that relationship that we have with Christ and push into the relationships that are significant here in this faith family. You and I are our brothers and sisters. You and I are the ones where we have greater relationship, and it's intended to be that way. We have intentional relationships with the lost. We have very deep relationships with the saved, the saints, because this is the means by which we get uh, growth, and we get um, encouragement and building up. So this movement of Christ for us to be engaged in his gospel message, message and ministry is going to bring persecution. All right, here's what Christ says about that. In this section of Matthew, he says, Do not be afraid. Do not fear to boldly live and proclaim the gospel because you know what is ahead. So Jesus doesn't go to the unknown. Jesus goes to the known. And he lifts it up and he says, hey, you know what is known. Here's what's known. Persecution is coming. This is a known. Vindication is coming. This is a known. Glorification is coming. So he points to the identity of what is known. The central ingredient of fear is mostly the unknown. So Jesus goes straight to the known. And he begins to point that out for us. Fear empower, is empowered mostly by this question, hmm, what if? Wonder if or will it? It's all about the questions of the unknown. So understanding this brokenness of our flesh and humanity, Jesus lifts up what is known. And let's go back to this. Here's what we know. Persecution will be ours. Again, in our culture, a slow simmering persecution, hoping to isolate you in order to stop your advancement of the gospel. Here's what is known, that God is going to reveal one day every uh, infraction against us, and he will, he will judge every one of those situations. So anything that has come against us, a secret whisper because of we're a follower of Christ, a plot against us because we are initiating the plan of Christ or a plan acted against us because we are exposing people to the way of Christ, any of that is going to be revealed by Jesus one day and he is going to judge it rightly. Which brings me to the third, that God will vindicate you of every wrong persecuted against you. Every one of them. Warren Wearsby testifies to this saying, the present judgment of men does not frighten us because we are living in light of the future judgment of God. All right, so what the enemy wants to do is bring fear so that you're thinking about today, and what God wants you to do 
press through that fear because you're thinking about what's coming up in eternity. Here's the way Paul wrote about it to the church uh, there in Rome. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable inside of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I recognize that's not altogether possible because of circumstance, and so does God. So he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So these are realities that help us to move forward in the gospel. So persecution is not simply a result of cause and effect. You know, there's all kinds of rules that God has created with creation, laws, and cause and effect is one of those laws. But this persecution goes deeper than a cause and effect. It goes into the sovereignty of God, that God's actually sovereign in the midst of persecution. You say, you mean God's in the midst of that? Well, if God is Lord of all, yeah. What is he doing that for then? Well, he does it for two reasons. Number one, it's a testing of the gospel communicator. So he will test us when opposition comes. And in the test, it proves out whether we're genuine or not. I will remember it every day of my life as I refer back to a pastor in Cairo, Egypt, as you know, that country has faced tremendous assault in persecution, rapid, systematic, violent assaults. And I asked him about that. He said, pastor, do not pray that the persecution would end. Pray that we will be found faithful. You know what God is doing in the midst of persecution? I said, no, what? He said, it's, he is shaking the tree." And what is coming off in this violent shaking of persecution is the bad fruit. You know what's remaining? He didn't have to tell me. Good fruit. If you're here in your religious way and not given to Christ, you are not going to bear the consequences of standing for Christ when you're not in Christ. And that shaking will occur at times to prove out what is genuine in the life of an individual. It's the testing by fire that God talks about in Scripture. When you move a material through fire in order to test it, the impurities get burned away, the dross is pulled away, and what is left is a more pure, more pure metal, or in our case, a more pure Christian who is given to the things of Christ. So number one, it's a testing of the communicator. Number two, it's a miraculous movement of that which is communicated. The gospel flourishes in the midst of persecution. I can show you where the church is advancing in great ways and on the same map show you the same places where persecution is intense. It's the testing of the communicator and it's the expansion, the miraculous expansion of the gospel. What if God wants to do a great move in your school but he does it through persecution? What if God wants to move wildly through your workplace, but he's going to do it through your persecution? What if God wants to do it in this community, but he does it through persecution? You say, would God do that? Well, he's done it to every other great movement of God that I've read about. Beginning in AD 70, when the church came under intense persecution, but the dispersion of the Christians around the world moved the gospel to flashpoints all over the known world. It happens over and over again. God wants you and me to be obedient to the point of moving through persecution with great identity in Christ that his gospel might move forward. All right, let's do this next point. Not only does God say through Christ, don't fear these things, he says, now you need to fear this. And here's what it is. Fear God with a healthy understanding of his love and justice. Now, the way Jesus says it is, hey, you ought not fear man. All they can do is kill your body. You ought to fear God who can actually take your body and your soul. Now, he's resetting us there. I want to do this in a um, picturesque way. Get my pad up here. I want you to think about fear and what the Lord has already told us not to have. He says, don't fear man. 
That looks more like ma'am, does it? But that's the way I write my ends oftentimes. And I have feared ma'am before, <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> but anyway, this is not fearing man. And uh, oftentimes the fear of man comes really because of acts of sin. Sorry for the scribble. Um, but anyway, you, you get what I'm saying there. So Jesus says, if you fear man, it's a dead end. It's meant to enslave. It's meant to suspend you. It's meant to tether you. Of course, Christ has wanted to commission us out, right, with his gospel. But fear of man is meant to hold you down. And the reason why is because fear of man actually comes from these acts of sins because they do it with rejection and hatred and with a real sinfulness. Now, the persecution is less about you and more about God. Now, it comes across as, man, do they ever reject me? Actually, they reject your Father in heaven. Man, do they ever hate me? Actually, they hate the righteousness of God in heaven, and you represent that. Man, they act in sin against me, and so would you if it were not for the nature of righteousness that now dwells within you by the Spirit. So this is meant by the systematic way of the enemy to provoke us to fear, to hold us, and to capture us. In fact, if I were going to say anything I would about this in one word, I would say this enslaves us. Now what Christ is calling us to do is to not fear man. The fear of the man, Proverbs 29, 25 says, is a snare. It's meant to be a trap. All right, what Christ is calling us to do is to fear God. That's a different fear. It's, it's not a fear that stymies me. It's not a fear that tethers me. It's not a steer that, fear that enslaves me. It's a fear that liberates. Because this, this act of God is actually in righteousness. Uh, when I'm writing this out, it doesn't show up on my screen for about two seconds afterwards. So... Um, that looked good when I was writing it in invisible ink, but then when it shows up, it's like, wow, that invisible ink is no longer invisible, and that looks horrible. Uh, I actually can write better than that. But this is a fear of God that is provoked because of his righteousness. It's his justice. It's his love. It's his grace. It's all that that we long for. And it causes, it provokes us to have a great reverence for him, a great awe of him. That's the right fear. And this movement, uh, I don't think I can write liberates and speak at the same time. Um, that liber my L didn't show up, sorry. That liberates us to be able to have movement in this gospel message. So don't fear man. It's going to cause you to stay tethered and never go out mobile for the gospel. Do fear God. It will liberate you with grace, mercy, love, truth, all those acts of righteousness for you. Let that be your fear. And, and the two are meant, as I was drawing that this week, are meant to show they never cross. There's no zigzag there. In fact, what they do is they go in the opposite directions so that you and I recognize that if we have a fear of man, we are never going to have a healthy fear of God. Or the opposite is true. When we have a healthy fear of God, then there's no real fear of man. It's a choice. And Jesus is calling us to make the choice today to fear God above all things and not fear man. All right, now that provokes the second, or excuse me, the third point that I wanted to make, and that is this, that there is no such thing as private faith. True faith is always public faith. No such thing as private faith. Oh, I've heard it said many times, faith is a private matter. No, it's not. Faith is a public matter. And I'll show you a case in point. When Jesus calls us to salvation by his spirit, he gives us a couple of commands. In the call of salvation, the first command is repent. Repent. It was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of Jesus right out of the gate. Repent. 
Repent in the original language means change your mind, change the way you're thinking. Many people say it's like going one way and turning around and going the other. Well, the turn around and go the other comes first by changing the way we're thinking about this. We're thinking about life, we're thinking about righteousness, we're thinking about sin, and we're doing it differently because God has given us the measure to do that. That's repentance. The fact that you and I can be repentant comes from God's grace that we have godly sorrow and recognize I can't stay in the direction that I'm going. I have to turn around to Christ. I have to surrender my life to him. So repentance is that. It's the first call. Now, repentance is an inward decision. That's a private inward decision that begins to be evident in external ways. So you don't have to convince somebody that you're repentant. In fact, if you're having to confess and convince somebody that you are a repentant person, then you have not been repentant. They will know it. Your language changes. What you're entertained by changes. Your purpose in life changes. The vernacular changes. Everything changes. Because your repentance comes in demonstrative ways. All right, the second command that he gives us in the repentance is be baptized. The baptism is the public demonstration of the new life in Christ. Baptism is the picture that God has put together for us showing that we have been buried with Christ and raised up to walk in the newness of life by His Spirit. So He says, be repentant and be baptized. That's the call of salvation and the, the first obedient response in our salvation. Then he gives us two commands in our salvation. Well, one command and one commission. The command is to love God and love people. And the commission is make my name known and share my transformational gospel. All right, let me know you're with me. Are you, you with me? All right, because this is all going to come together as well as I intend it to be, I hope. The enemy will bring fear in the midst of God's dialogue in our heart, and he will say, now, if you repent, you do know that that's a complete change of life, and you won't have the friends that you have. And what is your family going to think? And are you going to be a stick in the mud the rest of your days? If you repent, have you thought this through? What if, what about? And that little circle is where fear gets provoked and you don't stand on the truth that God has been sharing with you. But let's say you press through that and you recognize the identity that you can have in Christ and the call of Christ in your life and you do repent. And the first measure of your repentance is to demonstrate this publicly, this new life of being dead to self, being raised new in Christ Jesus. And the call is baptism. But in the midst of this call for baptism, which God requires of all of us, you start to hear the enemy, and he's provoking fear. Now wait. <laughs> you can keep this thing between you and God. There's no reason for you to do something that bold. Are you telling me you're going to do that in front of everybody in this room? Are you telling me you're going to look like a wet rat in front of everybody in this room? Are you going to let your mascara run down your cheeks? Are you kidding me? And fear will tether you so that you won't be obedient. But let's say you are obedient and you've been repentant, and you've done the first demonstrative sign of salvation, which is baptism, and now the command and the commission is given to you in your salvation to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbors yourself, and to communicate this gospel message in word and action. Now the enemy says, okay, enough's enough. Do you not know what it's going to be like if you're going to be the proclaimer of the gospel in this community? Do you not know that people are going to pull back from you? Do you not think that you're going to be titled as the Jesus freak? Do you not think that people are going to withdraw from you, that family is going to disassociate with you? 
Do you not know the changes that are going to happen? You're certainly not going to do that, are you? And fear will tether you and keep you from being mobile in the liberation that Christ has given to you. If you were in fear, where has that fear stopped you? Is it unto your salvation that is yet because you're too fearful? Is it the witness of baptism that you're not willing to be obedient to God to publicly demonstrate your new life in Christ? Is it the mute button of your life as a gospel proclaimer that is not heard? Is it the life that's not lived differently in the gospel of Christ? What is it that fear has stopped the movement of God in your life? In our salvation, Jesus commands us, fear not, but instead, fear God. I want you to listen to the narrative of Taylor Heinzman, who's recently joined our team here at Meadowbrook. She came to talk to me um, a few days ago, and I asked her, I said, Taylor, would you share that with our church family? Hi. So like Pastor Randy said, my name is Taylor Heinzman, um, and I decided that this morning I wanted to get baptized. So whenever I was seven years old, I thought that I had made a decision for Christ, but the life that I lived following revealed that I actually hadn't. See, I lived a life for myself. I wanted everybody to see the good works that I had done, the things that I was involved in, and I wanted all the credit and glory to go to me. And see, my eyes were not open to that reality until uh, the summer going into college. I went to a Christian camp, and the Lord met me there and radically changed my life. And from that moment on, I began to seek the Lord in a way that I had never done before. I began to want others to know him and have a relationship with him for their good and God's glory and not my own. I wanted to serve out of a heart of love and obedience and service to the Lord. And so since then, I realized, okay, I became a believer at this point. My relationship began that summer. And since then, these past five years since that experience, the Holy Spirit has been probing my heart and, um, and bringing this idea of baptism and this call of obedience to him um, up to the forefront of my mind periodically throughout these past five years. And each time it came up, I said, no. What, what are people going to say? What are, what are they going to think? that I had been involved in all of these Christian organizations. I had done these good works. Um, but what are they going to say? I work at a church <laughs> of all things. What are they going to think? And it, and it was that fear that kept me from being obedient to what God has called us to do, of proclaiming what he did that day, that summer, five years ago. And so <laughs> this past week, I decided that I'm tired of living in fear. I'm tired of, of wondering what people are going to say and think and, and do keep me from following and being obedient to what God, who is the creator of all things and who loves me beyond anything that I could even imagine, what he's called me to do. I want to walk and I want to follow that. And so this morning, um, I get the opportunity to be able to walk in that obedience um, and be baptized and show you guys and everyone um, that I, my identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so I'm excited about that. Thank you, Taylor. Might be the first time that this Baptist church has infant baptism uh, because she is with child. <laughs> They'll call me a liberal, but so be it. We all have moments of weaknesses, don't we? I've had those regrets where I sense the Spirit calling me to speak specifically and me convince myself in fear not to do it. I've had those moments. You probably have as well. You might ask, what about... The disciple, Peter, denied the Lord three times. Does that mean that the Lord is not going to confess him before the Father? 
I don't think so. Randy, you missed many an opportunity the Spirit prompted you with, and in fear you chose not to. Does that mean that the Lord is not going to stand for you in the day of judgment? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is there's a summary of life. It's a summary statement of life. Does Randy's life demonstrate the receptivity of the gospel and is it evident in his life lived and in his evident in his word shared? It doesn't mean that I don't have my times of weakness and you won't. But is the intentionality of my spirit to be gospel oriented? Does the spirit bear witness with my spirit that I'm saved. For the one who has received salvation, he can't help or she can't help but to openly dialogue with people who are in need of salvation. You can't experience that kind of love and grace and not be a giver of that. That's why he calls us to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, what God has demonstrated and given to you, be a good manager of that by giving it to others. And in the end, the people who prove to have received the gospel are the people who are proclaiming the gospel. If you've never proclaimed the gospel, and it's not your intentionality to live out the gospel, and I'm just going to go out on a limb, you're not saved. And fear has probably held you back. I've been going to church all my life. What are you talking about? I'm not talking about going to church. I've done many a good thing. I'm not talking about good things. Matthew 7 is clear about that, that there will be a day many people will make that argument to Jesus, and in the end, the summary of their life comes about where he says, Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is an amazing man. You might have read some of his works. Here's a quote. Time is short. Eternity is long. It is the time of decision. Those who are true to the word and confession on earth will find Jesus Christ standing by their side in the hour of judgment. He will acknowledge them and come to their aid when the accuser demands his rights. That is, Satan demands his rights that sin be paid for. Jesus will acknowledge them. And all the world will be called to witness as Jesus pronounced our name before his heavenly Father. Is it clear to God and to man that you stand with Jesus in a way that you know for certain that Jesus will stand for you on that day of judgment? Is it clear? And if it's not clear, what is God saying? Don't fear. Move forward in my call today. Now let's pray. Help us, Father, with courage and strength, with great grace and great love, to receive everything that you're saying to us today. And with that, we pray that we would be obedient in our response to the glory and honor of Jesus, who made it possible. In his name, amen. So maybe you're here and the Lord is calling you to repentance. Today's the day of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you've repented, but your life has never demonstrated publicly baptism. Today's the day. Maybe you're here today and you've been repentant and have been baptized and you have yet to march forth with the charge of Christ to love God, love people, and communicate His gospel. Today is the day. Stand with confidence. Stand with great faith. Stand with all tenacity and courage and strength in Jesus. Know who you are. And don't let the devil rob you. Don't let him steal from you. Don't let him destroy what God has done in building. Our staff will be down front to receive and pray with any of you who would so choose. Steps to the platform would always be available to you. Decisions are welcome if they honor Jesus and are commissioned by him. You come as God leads. Now's your time. With courage and strength, you're moving forward. That saved a wretch.
the liberation my chains are gone so thankful i've been set free my god my savior has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing standing on the word of God, letting it be the bedrock. Let's sing that. Taylor are going to step forward to the baptistry pool now. You've heard her witness of Jesus Christ. We'll ask her as we do every other person. Taylor, who is your Lord? Amen. And upon your profession of faith, your husband and spiritual leader baptizes you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We rejoice. God is good. Now go forth with courage and boldness. Make an impact. <laughs> 